Well, thank you. You're very kind. What an amazing congregation. I've been to Barry Island many times, but never to Barry Island Church, so this is wonderful to be here with you. It's one of our go-to places. We praise God for, for, the, for this congregation, and I thank God for meeting up with Nigel again, because it brings back all kinds of wonderful memories. I didn't mention, actually, I should, probably just should have said that as a result of running the Leadership Academy, we've actually started a thing called One to Lead quite a few years back now, and it's now in three sites in Britain. Um, where young people are just encouraged to get out into ministry and, and to serve the Lord. So we praise God for that. Well, well, we're going to be talking this morning about Thomas, and um, Becky's going to help me along the way here as, as we go through it. I wanted just to show you, first of all, a picture of the, what the upper room apparently looked like. Well, perhaps it didn't. It's been built around and all kinds of things since then. But this is, this is probably where all this stuff took place. Back there in Jerusalem, it had been for the disciples two really difficult weeks. Well, not all of it was difficult. I mean, some of it was exhilarating, even exciting. They met with Jesus in what I think was probably a leadership academy or a Bible school. And they met, I guess, every night. I don't know, probably during the night time, because Jesus seemed to be out in the temple preaching all the day. And Jesus started to talk to them. And he said to them, I'm going away. Can you imagine that now? I mean, for the very first time, Jesus said, I'm not going to be around. You can't keep asking me questions. But he said, you needn't worry. Because I've talked with my father and he's going to send you the Holy Spirit. So you'll be okay. And he'll come right alongside you every moment of every day, wherever you might be. In fact, he'll come alongside each one of you simultaneously, all at the same time. So the disciples, knowing that Jesus said he was going away, thought that he would just disappear. They hadn't grasped what he said. I'm going to have to die, and I'm going to be beaten up by the scribes, the Pharisees, the Romans. I'm going to be put on a cross, and then three days later, I'm going to rise again from the dead. Because they heard him say that at least three times, probably as many as five times, that we know that he said it to them, but they didn't grasp it, they didn't get it, they didn't understand it. So when he was arrested, they just thought to themselves, no big deal, we know Jesus. I mean, after all, he's powerful, isn't he? Storms mean nothing to him, absolute calm. In fact, even if the storm's there, he can still walk on top of the water, so he's no worries about him being arrested. <laughs> but they arrested him and took him away. And they tried him. And they put him on a cross. And they crucified him. And he died. What, the resurrection and life died? How could that possibly be? I suppose, as we come into our story and talk about Thomas, I suppose that many of us sometimes feel a bit like that. We've been praying this morning that for people who, who it seems naturally are going through such tough times that there is no answer. And I guess Thomas felt like that. Can I really believe that this is the Messiah? We expected that he would come into our world and he'd push the Romans out at the very least. But he didn't. He kept talking about love. Loving people that you can't love. 
He talked about forgiveness. He talked about all those kind of things. And yet somehow or other, Thomas couldn't believe that therefore he was the Messiah. I don't know if we've ever had doubts, but we're going to talk this morning about when doubts flood our mind. I was going to call it Doubting Thomas, and I thought that's a bit unfair on Thomas. Because everybody thinks of him as Doubting Thomas, and the man had huge faith. But he didn't start like that, and I guess most of us don't start there either. Our verse starts like this. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? You know what Thomas means, do you? If you just put it on, please. Thank you. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus. You know what Thomas means? Twin. Do you know what Didymus means? Twin. So twin, who was also known as twin, you get the message, he's a twin. In 2013, if we could just have the next slide up, that'd be really good. My daughter phoned us when we were in the Bahamas. She said, are you sitting down? We knew that she was pregnant She'd just gone for the first scan. And we were concerned because she just lost a baby in between. She had two already. She phoned us and said, I'm expecting twins. And there they are, Archie and Lottie. I think they're probably about six months there. It's kind of awkward being a twin, isn't it? Because everybody calls you a twin. So, so just recently, my daughter, about three weeks ago, phoned up and she said, Dad, when you're in Bristol with us, any chance you could pick up the twins from school? Because they're twins. And you don't feel very special. I mean, this is what they look like now. This was just um, a little bit back. I don't know if you can see it very well, but, but there they are. They were in the production of Mary Poppins, and they happened to be, if you know the story, they happened to be Jane and Michael Banks, because they naturally fitted into that sort of, that sort of area. They're, they're interesting twins. Because I want to say this, if you feel a bit like Thomas, you feel that everybody thinks you're just a twin or you're not very important or you're one of those marginalised people and, and nobody ever comes out the front and says, wow, it's great to see you. I mean, the Tugwells are quite well known and the Brins seem quite well known as well. And, and you all know Nigel and Jill, but, but perhaps you feel as if you're not really very important. I want to tell you, you are really important to God. You are an individual. And we'll pick that up in, in just a moment. I wish I could stop. Is that a bit better? Let's try and stop. That's better. Good. As long as it's loud enough, we're okay. Good. Um, yeah, they're twins. But they're individual twins. Actually, these two are so individual, there's something really special about them. They're so individual. But can I tell you, they were born in different months. So Archie, who's the boy, he's older. He was born... July the 31st, five minutes before midnight. And his sister was born on August the 1st, five minutes after midnight. So, so, so they're blessed in being a little bit special, but so was Thomas. Because this is the very next thing it says about Thomas. It says that Thomas was one of the 12. So if Thomas thought he wasn't important and, and he really didn't have a ministry... John tells us that he was one of the twelve. In other words, he was one of those who Jesus particularly said, I want you to be part of my team. I want you to be on the journey with me. I want you to walk with me. Only twelve were chosen, and Thomas was one of those twelve. And I really want to emphasize that no matter who you are, this morning you are really important to the Lord. 
You're an individual. He loves you individually. I mean, I don't know what Thomas must have thought about Jesus, but I do know this, that he knew he was at least one of the 12. We don't have too much information about Thomas. In fact, the only information we have is, is found in John's Gospel. I've called him a slow starter. And the story starts, well, up in Galilee, but we don't exactly know where. And Jesus is there with his disciples when a messenger comes running in. I guess it was a messenger because they didn't have email phones or, or any of the modern gizmos that we have to communicate with people. A messenger must have come and said, there's a guy who you know really well, who you love. His name's Lazarus and his sisters are Mary and Martha. And you probably know the story. And he, he's really, really unwell. And they need you to go down there because you're the one who heals everybody, Jesus. So w would you go? And Jesus stays around for two more days. And that must have been very hard for everybody around, including the disciples. Well, partly for the disciples, because they were having a discussion about this. And they say to Jesus, you can't go down to, to Mary and Martha, because if you do, you'll get arrested. And we don't want you to be arrested. And then Jesus says this to them. I've called it unbelieving fatalism. You'll see why in a minute. He told them, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that you were not there so that you may believe. I want to hit that word really hard today. Believe is not believing a certain number of facts. Well, you have to believe those facts. But believe is trusting, relying on, throwing your all on, saying, I cannot do it without you. That's what believe means. I want you, he says, to believe, to actually believe that I am who I say I am. I want you to believe that I can do what I say I can do. In fact, you cannot really do life without me. I want you to believe that. And we as God's people need to understand that. We'll never live life without him. If you're a miserable Christian at any time in your life, it's because you don't trust him. It's as simple as that. And I know that in my life, my best days are the days when I live closest to him, when I love him, when I walk with him, when I talk with him, when I cry with him, when I laugh with him. Those are my best days. And that's what he was saying effectively to them. I want you to believe don't worry about the fact that I might be arrested. Didn't you notice how I walked through the middle of them on at least two occasions? We so quickly forget the greatness and the fullness and the wonderfulness of Jesus, don't we? We just quickly forget it. Then he says, then Thomas says, okay, if we're going, let's go as well with him. If he's going, let's go with him so that we may die too. So, well, well, whatever will be, will be. Many of us live Christian lives like that, don't we? Whatever will be, will be. Instead of saying, Lord, whatever you choose will be. And that's where we come from. Whatever you're doing, Lord, will be. That was Thomas. Unbelieving fatalism. The next time we meet Thomas, we're in the upper room. I've called it unbelieving ignorance. Not that he was really ignorant, but he didn't believe. That was the problem. He had an ignorance in unbelief. Do not let your hearts be troubled, says Jesus. You know those words, John 14. Believe, if you, you believe in God, of course you believe in God, because you've been brought up that way. They were Jews. Believe in God, well, believe in me. Give me the same kind of trust and faith that you would ever have put in God. Believe in me. Well, I know I'm going away. Jesus said, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, 
Would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Jesus was going to prepare a place in the Father's house. That meant he would go from this world through death and ascend to the Father. And John always presents him like that, the one who goes to the Father. That's where he's going. And Jesus said, I'm going to the Father's house, but I'm not just going there. I'm going to prepare a place for you. That at least involved him dying for them on the cross. The reason why anyone ever gets to heaven is because Jesus prepared a place on the cross for us. He died to take my punishment for my sin, for the wrongs that I have done. He gave his life for me, and that's how I get a place prepared for me. And then he says this, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and take you to be with me, that where I am, you can be there as well. You know the place that I'm going, because I've told you I'm going to the Father. And Thomas pipes up and says, I don't get this. He says... Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? I don't get it. What do you mean you're going to die on a cross? What do you mean you're going back to the Father? What, what does it all mean? I don't understand it. You, you know what I love about Jesus? Well, there's a lot of things, really. I could give you a long, long list. <laughs> but, but tell you one of the things I love about him. You can go to him and ask him anything. However stupid you are, however ignorant you are, however dull you are, however sinful you've been, you can go and talk to him about anything. In fact, you might as well, because he knows it anyway. That's the truth of it. You might as well go and talk to him. Thomas comes with this wonderful, I love people like Thomas, always asking questions. And he says, Lord, I don't get it. I don't understand where you're going. Can I tell you another reason why I'm glad Thomas asked that question? Oh, because of Jesus' answer. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He was a slow learner. He didn't quite get it. The third thing I wanted to say about him being a slow learner is that he was very anxious and worried when Jesus died. I mean, they all were. I've called it unbelieving anxiety. You've, you've done this already. But there they were in the upper room. On the evening of the first day of the week, the disciples were all together. The doors were locked for fear of the Jews. There they are in anxiety and fear. Have you ever been anxious? I could ask you to put your hands up, but anybody who's never been anxious... I, I, I say that because it's simpler, isn't it? <laughs> we get our anxieties and we get our fears and they were worried. I think what they were worried about was being arrested. I mean, it wasn't they were terrified in the sense they wouldn't ever go outside the doors because after all, Peter and John that very morning had run to the tomb. So they weren't worried about going outside. But they did notice how subtle and how, 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 how sinful and how evil and... Uh, and how, how difficult those days were because, because it was night time that they tended to arrest people like they arrested Jesus so that nobody in the crowd would actually see what was going on. So it seemed to me when it comes to evening times, they bolted and locked the door so that nobody could get in. And there they were, terrified. Jesus comes. Oh, he's amazing, isn't he? Jesus comes into the midst of these people. Now, now, now the last thing that, that, that Jesus knew that these disciples had done was to run away and leave him. He said, will you pray with me? And they fell asleep. That's how exciting their prayer meetings were. Perhaps that's why we were standing this morning. I didn't quite understand that. But maybe that's a good idea. One of them, Peter, had even denied the Lord. 
And here's the first encounter with Jesus after resurrection. What would you have said to him? How could you leave me? I would have said. I was all on my own. I mean, I know I'm the son of God, but, but, but it would have been lovely to have someone just standing there with me so I could put my hand on their shoulder. But you all left me. But he doesn't say that. This is what he says. Peace. Peace. I've come to bring you my peace. If it was in Hebrew, he would have said shalom. And the idea is not just that there is a cessation of war or, or antagonism, because actually there never was any of that with Jesus. I mean, the disciples would have been, I would have thought, I don't know, would have been red-faced and embarrassed when they first met Jesus on that occasion. I would have been, that's for sure. But they knew very well that Jesus was not against them. And he didn't come straight in all guns blazing to say to him, to say to them, you really let me down badly and I'm against you. It wasn't peace in that sense, for he never holds grudges. Hallelujah. He never, ever has malice. He never thinks badly. He'll say things that are really cutting edge, but he never thinks badly about any of us. He just comes in, and what he wants to do this morning, if you have doubts and fears within your hearts, doubts about whether the Lord really knows your situation, doubts about whether you are important to him, doubts about whether he really loves you, let me ask you, let me tell you, he's come this morning to speak peace into your heart. And that peace is not just a peace that stops the anxiety, but it brings you into security and brings you into safety. It brings you into prosperity and blessing. It's the one that brings you into wholeness and completeness. And all that's tied up with that word peace. Peace be with you. But we learn that he wasn't even there, Thomas, on that occasion. I don't know where he was. I've called him an absent doubter. He wasn't there. I mean, had he gone shopping, as some people suggest? Needed food, so they'd better go and get some food? Did he just say, I can't take the claustrophobic conditions of this particular place, I need to get some air? I don't know where he was. Had he got second thoughts about whether Jesus was even the person who he thought he might have been, some kind of great teacher or rabbi? I don't know where he was, but I do know he wasn't there. There are lots of reasons why I go to church. Incidentally, our church is called New Life as well. And we meet in Fairwater in Cardiff. The reason, one of the reasons I go to church is because if the Lord should specially visit us in our church, I want to be there. Don't you? I don't want to miss the Lord coming in mighty power amongst us. And, and I was sitting at home doing my gardening or something else at home rather than be where the Lord was. And Thomas wasn't there when the Lord came. Because that's what it says in verses 24 and 25. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples, there would have been ten of them, Judas already had gone, of course. Ten of them said, we've seen the Lord. We've seen the Lord. Whoa. If you told me you'd seen the Lord, let me tell you, I'd be dancing around the place with you. I've seen the Lord. I've seen the Lord of, of all things. That's what I want to do. The greatest moment to me of heaven is the moment I first see him. Well, wouldn't that be wonderful? We've sung about it today. He shall return in robes of white. He's coming back. Hallelujah. He's coming back. Praise the Lord. He's coming back. What a moment to gaze into his face. The one who gave his life for me. Instead, we've seen the Lord. And yet somehow or other, Thomas couldn't believe it 
just couldn't believe it. Now, one thing I love about him, this is what he says, but he says to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were, put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. I mean, what's good about that is you know very well, because you've been taught very well in this church, I understand that. I know Nigel well enough to know that. (laughs) You know very well that you come to the Lord individually. You don't come collectively as a group. And we all need that personal relationship with the Lord. Unless you have a personal relationship with him, you'll never, ever, ever see the Lord. And I love that. He wanted to see personally. That, that's great. And he said, unless I see those marks, I will not, I will not believe. <laughs> Can I tell you something? Jesus heard it too. He heard Thomas say those words. How foolish we are sometimes to think that we can hide ourselves away. As if to say, Lord, turn your eyes away from this because you won't like it. As if somehow he doesn't hear what we say, doesn't know what we do. The Lord heard every single word of that. And he's determined he would come and see him again the following week. It's actually this Sunday. He would come on this Sunday, 2,000 or so years ago. And I've called Thomas, not any more an absent doubter, but a second chancer. I couldn't really think of a, of a better word than that word chancer because it means a bit different in English, really. But you, but you get the idea. God gave him a second chance. Hold on to that. Failure is never terminal with God. Never. He doesn't push you to one side and say, that's the end of you. Hallelujah. What a God he is. He uses us even if we've messed up the first time. He'll use us all over again. And not too much had changed. This is what it says. They were still frightened, verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. What are the doors doing still being locked? If you've met Jesus and you know he's alive, why in the world would you want to lock the doors again? You you, you kind of get the message of how slow we are to learn. I used to teach. I've learned since then I'm not a very good teacher but I'm a very great slow learner it takes me ages for the Lord to thump it into my head some message that I need to get hold of Thomas was like that the doors were still locked and they were still frightened so what did Jesus do with this grump of this group of still anxious Christians Jesus came it says in verse 26 and stood among them and said peace wasn't that what you said a week before Wasn't that exactly the same words? Don't we need to hear his words more than once? Being a teacher, I remember recalling that that we were taught in the very early days that most pupils need to hear something seven times before they get it. So you keep repeating stuff. Keep saying stuff over and over again. Jesus came and said, peace. That's what I've come for. I've come to bring you peace. Then he said to Thomas, well, you probably know the story, but what would you have predicted if you didn't know the story? What I try to do with the Bible is to walk in the sandals of the people who were actually there. If you were in that upper room, what would you expect Jesus would have said to Thomas? Why weren't you here last week? Might have been at the top of the, agenda, the list. I came, you weren't here. What happened to you? I might have said to him, Thomas... Can you be serious after all the work we've done together, after all the miracles that you've seen, after all the hours that we spent together? Can you be serious? But he doesn't say any of that. This is what he says to a still faithless Thomas. This is verse 27. 
put your finger here. Did Jesus grab his hand and hold his finger and push it into the nail print? I don't know. Did he grab his other hand and put it into his side? Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. There's only one thing that ever quells doubt, and it's a vision of Calvary. If you ever think you're not worth anything and he doesn't love you very much, go again and look at Calvary. See his hands stretched out for you in welcome. As he takes upon us all the wrongs that we have done, the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, all that long list of stuff that we've done wrong. And it was nailed to his cross and his blood ran down it. And he gave his life in order that I might have his life. What an amazing saviour. He's alive and because of that I'm alive. I have his life because he is alive. Thomas, you know that I love you and you can tell that I love you because you've seen Calvary. Isn't it wonderful to have a saviour who gave himself in totality for me and for you so that we might have life. Stop doubting then. Stop doubting. The last thing I need is for you to go away from church this morning worried about your doubts. You will have anxieties and you'll have them again despite knowing that he's the one who deals with our anxieties and doubts. You will have them. But take this from the message that if you doubt once, he'll come and say peace. If you doubt twice, he'll still come and say peace. And if you doubt three, four, five, six hundred times, he'll still say peace each time. Because he'll keep coming back to you. But he says to him, stop doubting. As he says to us this morning, stop doubting. Believe. Throw yourself completely on me. Trust me for every detail. However difficult life is, trust me for every detail. And that moment, something happened. And I'm praying this morning that God might do something in, in, in someone's heart this morning. Maybe in all of our hearts this morning. Because he then became a transformed believer. <laughs> and this is what he did. As he got transformed... He said, just five words, I've called it a revelation of majesty, because really that's what it was, a massive revelation of who Jesus was. He suddenly saw the man with prints of nails in his hands and in his feet, and the mark in his side, he suddenly saw that he was somebody completely different, and he says five amazing, magical words, my Lord and my God. You're my Lord. He would have said it in Aramaic, which is pretty close to Hebrew. And when he said that word Lord, he, he would really have referred to Yahweh of the Old Testament. You're, you're, you're my Yahweh. You're, you're, my, you're my God. You're my Lord who covenants with me. He was always the God of covenant in the Old Testament. A God who would agree, would make an agreement together. That covenant, of course, was the new covenant. And just a couple of weeks before, Jesus had taken a cup of wine into his hand at the Passover feast. And, and he instituted what we call the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, or the communion service. And, and, and he gave the wine as he drank it and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And this is the agreement I'm making with you. This agreement is that I will forgive your sins. In fact, he said, I'll not just forgive them, I'll remember them no more forever. Your sins and iniquities. And I will be your God and you will be my people. Because I want you to come into glorious and wonderful relationship me, with me. And Thomas picked that up and said, you're my Lord. I've got it. Lord, of course, is the ever-existing one. The one who was, who is, and who is to come. 
I get so encouraged about this. Do you know the Lord knows all about my past as he knows all about yours? He still loves me, by the way, which is quite amazing. He knows my present and walks with me in my present. But he also knows my future just as well as he knows my past, which is the reason why we do not need to doubt or have anxieties or fears or worries, because he knows. In fact, he's molding them. He's planning them. That's what he's doing. So Thomas, in that moment, suddenly realized something different, that this one was his Lord and his God. And he was his God. It's a great word, that, isn't it? He's his God. You have no other gods before me. From that moment onwards, he determined that he'd have no other gods. We live in a world full of gods. Not shrines. Don't have those too much. But we have lots of gods. The God of consumerism. The God of money. We watched a bit of television last night. Almost every program's about winning money. Have you noticed that? It's all about money, as if money's somehow important. I mean, we need it. I understand that. But, but it's become so consuming. I meet with a lot of people who spend most of their spare time exercising. Now, don't get me wrong. I do a few exercises too because I think it's good to keep a healthy body. But it's become an obsession. It's almost become a god. Let's see how good and big we can get our muscles and how far and how fast we can run and all of those kind of things. And somehow God has become, our our God has become kind of sidelined and pushed out. I was saying to a group of people the other week, you need to spend at least as much time preparing your soul as you do exercising your body. At least the two things, get them together. And in that moment, he said, he's my God, the God I want to live with, the God I want to serve. I I, I love the the only repeated word in that phrase. It's the word my, which is why I indicated it in colours for you. My, 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 my. He's my God. He's not the God of my church. I'm not the God of my family. He's my God. Isn't it wonderful to know that we have personal relationship with God of heaven? Whoa. Amazing. And he loves each one of us totally independently. Jesus said, I have one last thing to say to you, and I'm finishing with this. He gave him what I've called a glimpse of eternity. He says, blessed. Blessed, that's an amazing word too, isn't it? Of course, it means happy and joyful. Blessings always make you happy and joyful, but it's way more than that. It's not just blessing and happiness. It's all the goodness of God poured into my life in his grace and in his love. All the good things, all, all, all the prosperity, all the fruitfulness that's found in him poured into my life. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas says, there's going to be a whole pile of people who've never seen me and yet they've believed in me. He was actually going to experience it just a month or so later, just a bit more than a month later, as he exploded with the other apostles onto the streets of Jerusalem and spoke language he didn't ever thought he could know or learn. As the Holy Spirit came down and filled them in the place where they were, and they went out onto the streets of Jerusalem and spoke about the name of the resurrected Christ, the fact that he was alive, and 3,000 people came to Christ. Whoa. I've often wondered what we would do in church if we had 3,000 people suddenly getting saved in Barry Island. What do you reckon? I mean, I know the place wouldn't be big enough, so you'd have to meet outside, which is what they did anyway in the temple courtyard. But Jesus said, it's going to happen, Thomas, and you'll believe me then. God's calling us this morning to trust him. Absolutely. 
and not to doubt. To come to him because he's a personal God who just loves to interact individually with us. To bring us into a life of amazing blessing. I'm just going to pray for the moment and then I think Nigel's coming out. Lord, we worship you for all you are. So exciting to read your word. And we come alongside Thomas because so frequently, Lord, I know I feel like him. And I have those doubts and those fears and those anxieties and I cry out to you, Lord. Give me faith to trust you more. Lord, I want to believe in you more. To throw myself on you. To say to you, Lord, that I can't, but you can. And we pray, Lord, for a blessing upon each one of us this day that we'll know your fruitfulness. We'll know your peace. And Lord, you'll bring us into closer relationship with the one who is our Lord and our God. In Jesus' name, amen.